0: Hey, everybody. This is your Founding Friday host, John Odermatt, coming at you real quick before we kick off today's show. I want to talk to everybody out there, new listeners, old listeners, the whole spectrum. If you like this show, if you like what we're doing and you want to support us, I want you to consider joining the Lions of Liberty Pride. And I want to tell you why now is the best time to do it. So we have a special going on right now Um, If you sign up, so with Patreon now, we uh, have a uh, a way where you can sign up for a year in advance. And by doing that, you sign up for the Lions of Liberty Pride by going to patreon.com slash of Liberty. And you do the whole year, you're going to get two months free. And if you do that for, uh, we have different levels, right? From $5 up to to $50 and actually up from there. But um, if you sign up for $15 a month or more, we're going to send you a free Lions of Liberty beanie from our Lions of Liberty store. So you sign up at $15 or month or greater, um, you're going to get the beanie. You're going to get two free months. You're going to get all of our bonus content. Degenerate Gamblers is a show we have every single week, especially this time of year during football season, betting season, um, and we have Conspiracy Corner, an awesome show. Um, I am never on Conspiracy Corner, but I, it's one of my favorite. I'm not, even, I'm not even just saying this. I mean, I really, I really mean this. Conspiracy Corner is one of my favorite podcasts to listen to. It's going to be Mark and Howie. Enrico, and JB, and they do a fantastic job digging into all kinds of different conspiracies, but you can't hear it unless you're in the Lions of Liberty pride. So go to patreon.com slash Lions of Liberty. Let's get rolling into today's show.
1: Welcome to Felony Friday, a presentation of the Lions
0: of Liberty podcast. Here is your host, John Odermatt, felons, friends, and freedom lovers, welcome back yet again to another edition of Felony Friday, uh, your favorite weekly show. I hope here on the Lions of Liberty podcast. But you know what? If it's not your favorite, that's okay. I'm not going to take offense to it. You know, nobody's perfect. You know, maybe you like one of our other two shows. Maybe you like our Monday show hosted by Mark Clare. It's our flagship program where Mark's going to interview leaders in the libertarian movement, uh, entrepreneurs and movers and shakers and all types of people. Brian McWilliams on Wednesday hosts Electric Liberty Land. It's current events, it's comedy, it's culture, it's insanity, it's cursing, it's it's wild. So to get all three of these shows, subscribe to the Lions of Liberty podcast. Of course, you can do that wherever you get your podcasts. And you know what, if you like what you hear, just leave us a uh, review and a, a comment and all that good stuff and it helps out. With the algorithm, so more good people, especially in these election times when people are angry that their their candidate might not have been elected, they're looking for more libertarian content, looking for more stuff like that. So give us a boost, would you? Today's show, let's turn the page to today's show, because this is super, super important and a great show to share uh, with all kinds of people. People of all stripes. We have another interview with a prisoner on death row. And this is another co-author from the Crimson Letters, Voices from Death Row, which I'm going to link to on the show notes page. You can find it by going to our fancy brand new website at lionsofliberty.com. Check it out. Uh, Click around. Check out uh, all the uh, changes we've made there, which is thanks to our patrons who have supported us and uh, made this all possible. So thank you for that, patrons. The interview with uh, today's guest who is on Death Row, these interviews always... You know, they always they always get me with how raw they are and just the uh you know, just the pure honesty. And it's so you know, I always leave in the uh you know, the cutting away um because it's actually two different calls. It's uh you know, we're talking on a phone call to death row. Obviously they can't call in on Zoom, and it's two different phone calls. So I get a uh a 30-second warning and a fifteen or I get a 60-second warning and a 30-second warning when the call is going to end, and then they call back in. They can do two phone calls. So I leave all that stuff in, mostly because it would be a pain to edit it out, but also because I want you guys to, to experience that, what it is like to have a conversation with someone who is sitting on death row. So hopefully you guys will check it out and share it around. Hope you enjoy today's episode. My guest today on Felony Friday is Michael Braxton. He goes by the name Aleem, so that's what uh, I'll be calling him today. In 1996, Aleem was sentenced to die for killing another inmate in the Caledonia Correctional Center. He's been on death row for 28 years and spent seven of those years in solitary confinement. Aleem is also a rapper and a musician. And produces music on death row, so I just definitely want to ask him about that. Aleem, welcome to Felony Friday.
1: Thanks for having me.
0: Well, thank you so much for for coming on the show and and giving us your time today. And the place I, I want to start is where I start with with most of my guests, and where I've started with your with your co-authors on uh, Crimson Letters is really at the be- the beginning of your uh, your death row your death sentence, excuse me. And at the time of your, uh, you were sentenced to death, you were already serving a life sentence. I think I have that right. But if, could you share with me just uh, your mindset at that time? You're already serving life and then you're sentenced to death. What was that like for you, for, for that change to happen?
1: Yeah, Um. so when I first, you know, came into prison, as you mentioned, as I did have life, actually I had two life sentences and 110 years for um, some crimes that I committed back in 1993, February 1993, in fact. And, you know, so I had the fortune or misfortune, if you would, you know, um, like to categorize it, of going through two capital trials. So in my 1994 trial, which was for the crimes that was committed in 1993, is that, um, you know, my entire defense at that time was just, you know, generated around trying to, you know, saved me from being um, executed, from being sentenced to death. So when I had got arrested in 1993 is that I had turned myself in and I had also confessed. So there was really little um, effort that was put forth in the guilt-innocence phase of the trial is that all of my trial strategy was revolving around mitigation and preparation for the sentence phase of the trial because my, my guilt wasn't really up for dispute and it wasn't being contested. So I had, I guess, you know, the experience of going through a capital trial and having, you know, access to a tremendous amount of resources, even though it was state-appointed appointed attorneys. I had a, you know, tremendous amount of help from the Center for Death and Litigation in doing mitigation for me. And, you know, they did an amazing job talking to me and my family, talking to the school friends and uh, teachers and, you know, people from the community and, you know, retrieving, you know, pictures and photographs and, you know, art that I had created as a child and et cetera. So, you know, I actually, you know, was able to get life as a result of the amazing uh, defense that they put forth and presenting mm-hmm. mitigation. So in 1996, you know, I killed the inmate when I was at Caledonia, correctional, as you mentioned. And, you know, I, I had, a I guess, a reasonable expectation that being that... I had experienced a capital trial before. Is that I thought I knew what to expect when going through a capital trial again. However, it was a totally different scenario, being that my, um, you know, my my guilt as as far as first degree murder was uh was being you know put under trial, and I didn't confess or you know, nor did I acknowledge you know uh, being culpable or responsible for first degree murder. Is that more of the resources were supposed to be you know, focusing on the guilt-innocent phase. So there was absolutely no preparation for mitigation. And, you know, I guess in my naivete is that, I, you know, I felt like that based on previous experience that I was going to, you know, have the same type of uh, trial and mitigation in the second trial. And, you know, because my first trial, it was very, you know, uh, considered atrocious. Um, It was an execution-style homicide. And, you know, it was very high profile in the prison uh, murder that I committed. It was, it was, you know, it wasn't even publicized. So I guess I had a relative expectation that just going through the trial that I wouldn't receive the death penalty. So when I did get the death penalty, you know, I was extremely, like, shocked and surprised. And, you know, not to, you know, negate or minimize the value of life in prison, but it's just based on the representation that I had in my previous trial is that I was assumed that that this was the standard for what a capital trial was like. And so my representation was absolutely nowhere near compared to that. So when I did get the death penalty and I came to Central Prison, is that I was like in a complete state of shock and despair. And being that I'm from Raleigh, is that you know Central Prison is in Raleigh, North Carolina, is that being here, being on death row, being able to look out of my cell window at the time on solitary confinement, and seeing Western Boulevard, which I had gone past maybe a thousand times or more in my life prior to imprisonment, and never imagining that I would be on the other side of this wall and actually being on death row, is just, you know, it was something that just completely left me in a state of despair.
0: Wow. Uh, so you just mentioned uh, your time in solitary confinement. Uh, if I have this correct you spent seven years in solitary confinement was that seven years straight
1: yeah i I, well actually i've done about 10 years of solitary confinement but i did seven and a half straight from uh, august of 1996 to february of 2004
0: so what was the reason you were in solitary
1: for killing the inmate at Caledonia Correctional, is yeah. um is in, in in addition to being sentenced to death, is that you know on the um prison level, is that I was disciplined for being committing a fraction inside prison and put in maximum control status, which was solitary confinement.
0: So tell us about that time the uh, seven years in solitary confinement. You know, someone like myself or. You know, most people who haven't been in that situation, let alone for seven years, how do you cope with it? How do you maintain your sanity? What types of things do you do to 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 pass the time when you're in that situation?
1: Yeah, uh, you know, that's a good question. And you know, just to be you know blunt and forthright, as I I don't feel like I maintained my sanity. Is but I definitely feel like you know I literally lost my mind in that seven and a half year period. Is that I went through a you know, great. You know, uh, downfall is that I had a, a relative time of, you know, um, growth where I just did some reading and, you know, some self-examination and, you know, peering into myself and trying to understand me a little bit better. But throughout the prolonged period of time, is that it definitely had, you know, its effect on my mental state. as I became extremely paranoid, extremely distrustful of people, uh, extremely uncomfortable around other people, and you know, it, it, you know, drove me to a point where, you know, I felt extremely dangerous to myself as well as to other people. Um, you know, being confined in a, in solitude and, you know, any time any human interaction is had, you know, I was in full restraints. I had handcuffs on, I had a chain around my waist, I had leg irons or shackles on my ankles and, you know, I it had absolutely no physical human contact. Um, and you know, in addition to just the environment of being around you know other people that was in solitary who definitely you know had mental illnesses and you know the you know throwing urine and feces and you know kicking on the doors and banging on the doors, which was like a continual everyday state of affairs as well as the you know excessive aggressiveness of the officers on solitary is that it just had me in a definite state of you know, excited, agitation, paranoia, distrust, and it, you know, it it, it contributed to uh, the deterioration of my mind as well as my morale, is that I definitely questioned what was the purpose of continuing to live, being on death row, being in prison, being in solitary, and seeing no end in the immediate future to any of those circumstances. Um, It definitely broke my spirit.
0: Tell us about we you get out of solitary confinement after seven and a half years. what was that adjustment like being put back into the general population?
1: yeah, uh when I got off of solitary initially you know as I was unhealthy um my as I mentioned it I was extremely paranoid um I was you know excitably uh aggressive, and my thoughts were violent and very dangerous is that i you know i felt pretty much like a dog that had been chained to a tree or, you know, for a long period of time with the anticipation or the feeling that you're here because you're dangerous, you're going to bite somebody, or the expectation is that somebody else is going to harm you. So when I actually did get off Solitary Confinement is that I had all of those internal feelings of the expectations of harm or the expectation that i was supposed to harm someone else and it was a it was a very you know um awkward and and uncomfortable and uneasy um uh, adjustment so you know i did experience you know a uh, uh, you know a lot of anxiety of being in public places with people you know in, in you know where we congregate and i definitely didn't feel comfortable you know with people walking by me or you know standing near me or you know, even in places like in the stairwell, where you know I hadn't been walking downstairs or walking upstairs, you know, for years, so I felt like I was gonna fall down the stairs. I, you know, would have anxiety about issues like that, and and you know, eventually, you know, um, I did, you know, develop some social uh, ability to communicate with people, but it was it was a process.
0: Yeah, it's it's interesting you say that. I mean, because like you said at the beginning that the solitary fine is punishment for the crime you committed. And then, you know, at the same time, it's, it's sort of changing your mentality into a, a worse direction. Um, and that's crazy to think about. I never would have, I never would have thought of this before, but just going up and down stairs cause you hadn't done that for so long. It, it's, uh, it's a weird experience, which makes, makes sense if you're, you know, stuck in, you know, stuck in a cell for seven years. Yeah.
1: And another thing is like, when I went outside for the first time and was able to walk on grass and dirt, you know, I've been walking on concrete, which is stable. It, it you know, it mm-hmm. has no give to it. You know, when you step on, you know, concrete, it, 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 it feels the same every step you take. When I walked on grass and dirt for the first time outside in the wreck yard, is that I
0: you have 60 seconds remaining.
1: Felt like I was gonna fall at any minute. So that was a, you know, an experience that I never, you know, would have, you know given any thought to prior to the actual, you know, attempt to walk on grass.
0: Yeah, that's 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 something I would never think of, but yeah, that that totally makes sense. And the and the social interactions too, you know, just being able to talk to people, I'm sure was was really difficult. I know that we're going to have um, I guess we probably we're going to we get the 30, 30 seconds, seconds remaining. There it is the 32nd warning. Um just to give you uh the, the next question to think about um when you're calling back is I'm gonna ask you about you know what was the what changed? You know what changed in your mentality from when you get out of solitary uh to that got you to where you are today. So when when you get okay. back on we can we can start with that. All right. Hey, everybody, taking a quick break here from the show, wanted to remind you all to check out uh, my man Tyler Colford, a.k.a. Crypto Man and his new song, Free Ross. If you didn't hear my recent interview with Lynn Ulbricht, that was episode Felony Friday, episode 230, interviewed Lynn Ulbricht, played Tyler's song, uh, Free Ross. It's fantastic, phenomenal. Not just for uh, the message of freeing Ross Ulbricht, but overall for changing the broken criminal justice system. All the proceeds from uh, the Free Ross song, hashtag Free Ross by Crypto Man. You can find it on Spotify and Amazon, Amazon Music. 100% of the proceeds from the song, hashtag Free Ross by Crypto Man, go towards freeing Ross Ulbricht. So please check it out these are perilous times when they ruin your
1: lives over victimless crimes and they sever your ties from your business loved ones and family why. new slave play but they barely pay you don't care about work ethic or major
0: so, so we're back here um alimia the, the question that we talked about uh, before the uh, the call there when or before you had to call back is what took you from you know that time you get out of solitary confinement you're you know trying to readjust to to life back in general population what what changed or you know how did you work on yourself to get from that time then until where you are today
1: yeah it was um it was a a myriad of different events um for one primary the, the base was definitely the development of my faith i had embraced islam um a few years prior to that and you know, it was my contemplation, particularly on the final, you know, maybe year or so in solitary about, you know, life after death and, you know, my, you know, getting close to the point where I really honestly had arrived at the decision that I didn't want to live anymore. And prior to that, is you know, I, had, I didn't believe in the existence of a life after death. And so upon some contemplation of the Quran of some, different verses that I read in the Quran is that, you know, my faith in a life after death, you know, became something that, you know, developed and I was convinced that there had to be a life, you know, greater than just the, you know, the the transitory limited period of life that I was here on this earth. And to me, that was something that was very, very um, important because, you know, being on death row, you know, of course, you're aware of your mortality, the fact that you are literally here waiting to be executed so you know with being on solitary confinement for so many years and, and feeling in such a deep despair and you know feeling like that there's no there's no end for me there's no uh, end other than dying whether if it's within the next week or the next five years or 20 years is that ultimately i was going to die in prison and i wanted to do something to you know to put an end to the suffering, because I just couldn't see no sense of allowing myself to continue to, you know, go through the, the hardship and the agony of the suffering that I felt that I was experiencing in prison. So with these experiences and these thoughts and that finding what I felt like was finality at that moment, that decision that, you know, I'm going to end it all, is that it really, you know, caused me to critically examine my beliefs and ideas that I had about God and I had about life after death. So that was my first initial um, you know spark of you know changing the way that I thought is that once I became convinced that you know that there had to be a life after death and I was convinced on that based on the fact that I did believe in God and you know I, I knew that people that did good in this world sometimes they didn't get any rewards in this world and sometimes people that did evil didn't receive any punishment and so if God was justice that I believed that it had to be Uh, a a life after this life and in which people receive the rewards or the punishment for the things that they do in this world. And that gave me faith. And when I got off lockup, you know, on solitaries, prior to that is that I, you know, mentioned in the book is that I had started preaching a a deadly gospel. You know, I had talked to a a friend of mine named Willie Forrest and, you know, a couple of other guys, and, you know, we were kind of intent on, you know, doing something that was going to, you know, result in our death. You know, primarily attacking some guards, maybe killing some people, and just going out with some, you know, tragic, you know, uh, bang that would end all of the suffering, but would kind of leave some, you know, uh, ongoing uh, legacy for ourselves after death. And after being released from solitary is maybe within the first six months or so is that My friend Willie, he went to court and he pulled one of the officers' guns and shot, you know, a couple of officers in the courtroom and they killed him. And I was sitting in the day room and I saw the news break and I saw, man, you know, Willie just killed, you know, got killed. He's dead. You know, he went out with that tragic bang. But it was simultaneously around that same time is that I had this huge epiphany about the decisions that I made today determining my tomorrow. And I realized that the position that I was in, the condition and the state of mind, as well as my reality, being on death row at that particular moment was based on decisions that I had made in my yesterdays. And as I contemplated that, is that, I realized that if that was the case, then I could possibly make more decisions in a more positive way that could produce an outcome that was different from what was, you know, seeming to be you know, set in stone for me at that moment. I I realized that if I continue to think and act the way that I had previously been thinking and acting, then the future for me was absolutely certain. But if I did believe in God as as I had developed my faith and I believed in the doing of good and the reward of good, is that I believed if I could do good, if I could change my attitude, if I could change my behavior, and not just, you know, on a lip service level, but a sincere change within my heart, within my, my attitude, within my mind, that if I made a serious attempt to change my decisions and the person that I had been, that perhaps I could change the outcome of my fate, even possibly, you know, with, with the death sentence and et cetera. And that gave me a sense of power. That made me feel that I was in control because, you know, in prison, this is like a huge mountain, and it seems unconquerable. You know, I got Supreme Court justices and, you know, district court justices and prosecutors and, you know, so many people that, you know, are seeming that, you know, they are in power, they are in control. But if I felt and I did feel and I feel now is that if I had a sense of power over the ultimate end of how things would turn out based upon how I acted, how, how I lived and conducted my life that it would produce, you know, the type of spiritual consequences that would, you know, determine in the future the fate of my life, and that was empowering for me. And that definitely began the process of me changing on a sincere level within my heart and my mind.
0: That's, that's a powerful message. And, you know, a lot of people who are, aren't even in prison, who are out in the free world, you know, sort of lock themselves in a, in a mental prison. And don't don't allow themselves that uh, that power. So to be able to do that while you're in prison, um, that's I mean that's that's a powerful message. I want to pivot here and uh, start talking about your contribution, your writing, uh, being a co-author for for Crimson Letters. Can you tell us a little bit about how that came about and uh, why you wanted to do it?
1: Yeah, um, you know Tessie, she came in as a volunteer. Um, around 2013, 2014, I can't remember precisely what year, but um, she, you know, came in with a writing class, and then she kind of, you know, dwindled it down to two different classes, and she selected me to be in her journalism class. And it wasn't long before she wrote an article that the prison didn't like, and she got banned, couldn't come back in, which is all that is mentioned in the book. Mm-hmm. And then she reached out and wrote a couple of us. Um, she wrote Chanton a letter. And Trenton let me know, hey, I got a letter, letter from Tessie. He said, we free to write her if we want to. And when we was in the journalism classes, I had wrote, actually, a piece that is in the book, Mercy on My Soul. And I had read it in the journalism class. And Tessie was so, you know, excited about that piece. And she was told me specifically, she said, you're a great writer. And I envy you because you're going to publish a memoir before me. And <laughs> that just really, you know, lifted my spirits and my confidence. You know, I, I didn't really, you know, feel like I, you know, was very exceptional at writing anything, but when she encouraged me to write is that, you know, I I wanted to do it. I wanted to express myself. I wanted to talk about some of the things that I felt like only people in this situation could express and talk about, you know, the life and the reality and what it feels like, you know, being on death row and what it feels like and the experiences of what goes on in the mind and the heart of a person like myself because nobody else could articulate that you know academics or you know people who do statistics and talk about crime or talk about the death penalty etc they can only do that from an academic level but you know i wanted to give the true insight and perspective from my heart from my mind for how i felt and so when tessie you know presented the opportunity for us to write a book at first she'll tell you is i was resistant to it you know we had a you know, some pushes and pulls, but when I came around to it, you know, I definitely wanted people to hear my voice, not only for myself, but for other people here that didn't have an opportunity to have their voice heard, but I feel that, you know, some of our situations and struggles and experiences are parallel, and I wanted to represent a demographic of people that, you know, are rarely heard or seen, so that was what motivated me, and uh.
0: Participating in Crimson Letters. Yeah, well, I'm I'm glad you did. I'm glad your co-authors did, and but uh, I want to encourage everyone to, of course, of course, buy the book and I'll link to it on the show notes page. I'm not sure how much time we have left, but I definitely want to ask you about your uh, your rapping career and producing music on death row. A lot of us uh, on the outside probably can't imagine how that works. Can you just uh, you know talk a little bit about that and and share how you're able to produce music on death row?
1: Yeah, sure. That's that's been my passion. You know, that's one of the things that has been consistent in my life before I came to prison. I started rapping when I was about 13, and, you know, it's one of the things that I can still do on this side of the wall. And for many years that I wrote and wrote and wrote, and I really didn't have any, you know, intentional desired goal that I would record anything. Most of the writing I did was just for myself. It became therapeutic before I was writing in crimson letters is that, you know, my you know, first and primary form of expression has been through my writing as far as rhymes. And that was the conduit for me to be creative and express things about myself and to figure things out that, you know, I didn't have an opportunity or any other way of getting those things outside of myself and examining them. So, you know, it wasn't until we had access to the telephone in 2016 that the notion of you know, even trying to record any of my music was even possible. So, with the you know access to the telephone, is that I was fortunate to make some connections with you know several different people through Hidden Voices that began to be my first kind of crack of the door, which was one of the programs that we had in here. When Tessie was also coming in as a volunteer, and I had met some people through Hidden Voices that had recorded a monologue for me, and that helped me in as far as learning how to meet someone to that could record my vocals over the phone, just like we're doing right now. Mm-hmm. And, you know, when I learned that I could actually put this on the Internet, that that's what I did. We just did it as an acapella. And eventually, I was able to connect with some producers and, you know, put some music to the beats. And it's been my focus and my goal and my aspiration that if I could do this music for the purpose and the sake of trying to generate some attention to the fact that there's innocent people on death row. And that's one of the things that just like blew me away when I came to death row is that I honestly never ever conceived that it would be anybody in here that was innocent. I mean, you know, I'm guilty. I mean, there's no question about that and I honestly felt when I came through the doors that everybody was just like me and I felt like I was one of the worst of the worst and that I deserved to be here. I honestly felt, you know, that it was justified in sentencing me to death and I wasn't bitter or anything. And I expected that the people that around me, you know, were just as guilty and just deserving as I was. And so when I ended up discovering that there were actually people in here that were innocent, particularly in 2014 when Henry McCullum was exonerated after 30 years on death row for a crime that he didn't commit, and I actually believed he was guilty the entire time that he was here, it just changed my mind. It changed my heart. It changed the way that I looked at people and the people that was around me. And i seen that the system was so faulty and that I've met other people here that are innocent and just don't have the opportunities or have the access to be heard. So I figured if I could use some skills, some ability that I had, that I could shout or make noise to generate some type of spotlight to you know, what I'm doing, that maybe I could use that to, to bring some attention to their situations and hopefully people will become aware of their innocence.
0: That kind of takes us right into my last question. If you could just kind of, kind of elaborate... Um Years from now, when you're gone and people look back on your life, how do you want to be remembered?
1: Well, ultimately, I want to be remembered as someone who, you know, definitely I, I want to be in, in my fullest scope is I want to be known as someone who, you know, went to the lowest of the low, it, it, it committed crimes and, and things that you know were horrible, that did things that you know I, I'm not a uh, I'm, not, I'm not a proud of. You have sixty seconds remaining. I also want people to know that, you know, that there was a redemptive aspect and that, you know, I dedicated the rest of my life to trying to help people, to trying to save people that were in situations that were uh, uh, very misfortunate. And that one of the verses in the Quran that inspires me is that it says that to take a life is like killing all of humanity, but to save a life is like saving all of humanity. So I want to dedicate my life and the remainder of it to doing what I can to try to. You have 30 seconds remaining. To try to save some of the innocent
0: lives here on death row. Well, Liam, I want to thank you for for coming on the show and uh, and sharing with my audience. You know, and just just like with crimson letters, with you know, with writing that book and with uh, you know what you're doing with your music. uh, You know, this podcast is going to go out to thousands of people, and for them to be able to hear from you. Someone on death row who is motivated and inspired to make a change. Um, I, I think uh, I think that's awesome. So thank you. Hope you guys enjoyed that episode of Felony Friday. Another awesome episode. Just want to remind everyone before you get going here, after your next uh, next podcast and your shuffle or whatever it is you're doing with your uh, your day today. I want to thank you for giving me your time and uh, listening to this interview. I want to ask you, please to share this with a friend. The only way that we're going to expand this message, that we're going to reform this criminal justice system, is by sharing interviews just like this with your network. Very easy to do. And I also want to ask you to please, if you have not yet checked it out, you need to go to the Lions of Liberty store. It's lionsofliberty.store. Uh, We have a bunch of new t-shirt designs, really interesting stuff, really eye-catching designs. Uh, Of course, our Taxation is Death shirt has been a hit. It's selling like crazy. We now have the, the Tax On Wax Off shirt. Just awesome, and, and there's more coming. We're really trying to get into uh, what we're calling it the Lions of Liberty brand of shirts. So, you're going to get the cool design on the front, and then up just real small, up by the tag on the back, you're going to have our Are You Ready to Roar logo. Uh, we're trying to, you know, take another angle here and influence people through uh, you know, some snazzy t shirts. So, check it out lionsofliberty.store. And remember, if you're in the Lions of Liberty Pride, you get 20% off. So for as little as 5 bucks a month, you're going to get 20% off all your T-shirt orders. So to join the Pride, go to patreon.com slash lionsofliberty. And with that being said, guys, thank you so much for joining me. Have a great weekend or week or whenever you're listening to this. Just have an awesome day. I'll talk to you next week. This is John Odermatt signing off. Always remember to keep your head up. And the fire is liberty burning.